0: This is Rev. Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Camp Brown. and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Last Sunday morning, we considered together one of the most controversial doctrines of our Christian faith, that of eternal security of the believer. In that message last Sunday, I tried to present the biblical truth that one who has truly been born from above, or as the King James says, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, born again, then that one never reaches the place where he or she becomes unborn or loses that permanent state of security in Jesus. Now, without preaching that sermon again this morning, let me try to sum up in a nutshell the main ideas of last Sunday talked about the origin of salvation. A person is saved on the basis of the grace of God. God sees that we do not deserve his salvation, but he gives it to us as a free gift. Our receiving salvation is not based on our performance pattern of good living, but rather upon our willingness to relax our resistance to God and let him come in and forgive us through his son, Jesus Christ. The second idea of last Sunday was the security of the saved. Jesus says that when he comes into our lives and saves us, he gives us eternal life. We shall never perish, John 10, 28. He says that no one can pluck the saved individual out of the Father's hand. We looked at the fact that Jesus was speaking of those who were really saved, not those who may have given the appearance of having had this experience, or not those who may be only church members somewhere. And finally, we asked last Sunday, who is it that ensures that one who is saved remains also always saved? And the answer is that when we give ourselves to God through Jesus Christ, He is the one who ensures our salvation. We have no strength. We cannot promise we'll be able to hold on And so the conclusion of the sermon last Sunday was that when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not so much that we're holding on to God, but rather we are held by his mighty power. On the basis of this truth, I asserted last Sunday my personal belief in the Bible teaching of once saved, always saved. Several years ago, I preached on this subject here at Ocean Lakes Family Campground. Some of you may remember that, but since most people seem to forget sermons rather quickly, (laughs) that's why I feel at liberty to repeat them occasionally. Interestingly, there are quite a few people who have a real concern about this subject. It seems that this is a matter that many people want to know more about. Many years ago, I preached on this subject in another church after which I received a letter from one person who had read the sermon. This person said in her response, I really believe in this, but I'd like to have a better foundation for my belief. This is really the whole purpose of what I tried to present last Sunday. But those who are thinking people usually begin asking questions about other passages in the Bible, which seem to speak against this once saved, always saved idea. Now, if these other passages are true, then what can we believe? Well, first of all, let me say I believe they all are true. All the Bible is true. But let's look at them. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Let's look at another verse from Hebrews ten twenty six. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no sacrifice for sins. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now I've given you just three there, but there are some other passages such as Hebrews twelve, fifteen, Galatians five, four, and second Peter two, verses twenty one and twenty and twenty one. Anybody who is seeking really, to discover the real truth of God's word, ought to approach passages like these with a reverent humility, guarding against taking any attitude that there's just one possible interpretation and saying, anybody who doesn't agree completely with me, that person's all wrong. Oh, how important it is not to allow differences in Bible interpretation to disrupt a spirit of fellowship or brotherly love between Christians. On these passages I've just read, equally competent Bible scholars sometimes disagree. I've been interested to note in my own study of these passages that some scholars present their views rather dogmatically and with great force, whereas others are equally forceful on the other side of the fence. And incidentally, it's also quite interesting to me to read some commentaries where the authors do not comment at all on these verses. They just glide on by to other passages which are not so difficult to understand. Well, before we look in some detail at Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which is our text for this morning, as well as looking at some other passages, let me share with you a bit of my own process by which my view has been arrived at on the basis of serious study and thought I have tried, first of all, to understand what the Spirit of God is saying through the broad context of Holy Scripture. I have tried to avoid approaching the Bible with a preconceived notion, trying to look up verses which will support my own view, which is, that's called the proof text method. I've tried to read widely such Bible scholars who are known to be Christian in their approach with a reverence for God's truth, but all the while not allowing any one man's writing to supersede the first place of importance, which belongs alone to the Bible. Yes, books about the Bible can be helpful if we don't read books instead of the Bible. Then as all of us, all of this input of information has filtered through my thinking, I've asked God to reveal through his Holy Spirit the truth that he wants to give me. As I receive what I feel to be God's truth, I remember I am fully capable of error. If the conclusion at which I arrive is not truth, then the fault is always in my receiver and it's never in God's transmitter. His truth is always the same. But we as human beings do get mixed up in our receiving and thus we have many ideas, opinions, and denominations. Now, that's quite an introduction to a sermon, isn't it? <laughs> so let's look in closer detail at some of these difficult passages. <clears throat> One that I did not read earlier is Galatians 5.4. Here, the author, the Apostle Paul says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. To some people, this phrase, fallen from grace, means that a person may lose their salvation. But if we read the text more closely, as well as the surrounding verses, we'll see Paul is talking about something quite different. These people had been trying to get right with God by obeying the law instead of by faith in Christ through God's grace. Paul here is insisting that there's only one way and that is through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, not by the law. Paul is saying, in effect, the only way is through grace. And when you strive for salvation through the law, then you've fallen away from the real thing, grace, and you're back down on the level of the law, which is not sufficient for salvation. The Apostle Paul is not saying here that some have experienced salvation and have fallen out of salvation by something they've done. In fact, Paul is talking here to a group of foolish Galatians, as he calls them in chapter 3, verse 1. Foolish Galatians about the folly of trying to be set right with God through the law. Paul says, oh no, you got it wrong. Grace is the only way. And when you fall down to a lower level, of trying to be saved through obedience to the law, folks, that is not good enough. You've fallen away from the real thing, which is grace. I think perhaps the most difficult passage on this subject is Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. We read that earlier. Here the author speaks of those who were once enlightened, who've tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And then in verse 6, he says that if these fall away, they cannot be renewed again unto repentance. Now, in fairness to the text, I think we have to agree that the author is speaking directly of a person who has been saved. Some people try to water this down saying that one's only tasted of the heavenly gift, but no, been no real experience of salvation. I don't buy that theory. seems to me that the author is seeking to describe a true experience of conversion. He uses a lot of phrases to describe it. Once again, I think it's necessary to fit these verses into their proper setting. In the preceding verses, the author has been urging his readers to grow up into Christ, to mature, to quit being baby Christians. And so to reinforce this urging in even a stronger way, he decided to use an illustration he just sort of pulls out of the air, a hypothetical case. He's not seriously suggesting that this could really happen, but he's talking about if this were to happen. Seems to me to be entirely appropriate in the context here that the author might well have reached the point of temporary frustration, which led to this hypothetical illustration. He had been urging upon his readers the importance of growing in the faith. And as his vigor and enthusiasm grows, he reaches the point of need for a great, strong emphasis, which he accomplishes in the use of an illustration, which is actually not based on factual possibility. He's saying, just imagine that, or let's pretend that this could happen. Let me use another example. Have you ever thought in your own mind, suppose I could fly like a bird? I wonder how that would be. Have you ever gone down to the beach, maybe here at Ocean Lakes or somewhere else? You've watched those seagulls or other beach birds, and you thought what it would be like if you could fly like that? Now, I'm not talking about it in an airplane, but I, like a bird, just fly. Well, if I could fly like a bird, I would just soar up there in the sky. You say, preacher, are you saying that you are about to be able to fly like a bird? <laughs> oh no, you missed the point. I said, if I could fly like a bird. If a person actually could be a redeemed Christian and then lose his or her salvation, there'd be no more hope for that person, the author says. And if this were the case, then you'd have all kind of Bible verses you'd be hard put to explain, such as, whosoever will let him come. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, or the favorite of many, John 3.16, which says, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And none of these verses give a qualifying exception, saying, Now this applies to everybody except those who are trying it for the second time around. Actually, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6 is a passage which should give no comfort at all to those who believe you can lose your salvation. Those who believe you can be saved and lost and saved and lost back and forth would seem to have a difficult time explaining this passage, which suggests that if your salvation could be lost, then it can never be regained. But I'm persuaded that the author is not saying here that one's salvation can be lost. He's pointing up the extreme importance of growth and maturity in order to avoid getting so close to the edge of losing one's warmth and fruitfulness and fellowship and joy in the Lord. In fact, the author comes back in verse 8 to say, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. As the living Bible has it, dear friends, even though I'm talking like this, I really don't believe what I'm saying applies to you. And so I would say to y'all this morning, dear friends, I am not looking forward to the day when I can physically fly like a bird. You see, sometimes we use phrases or figures of speech in order to get across a truth. I'm saying that Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 is biblical truth, but let's keep it in the Bible. It ought to be there, yes but let's also understand what the author is really saying. Some years ago, several preachers took a flight from New York to London. As is the custom on all transatlantic flights, the passengers were given instructions as to how they could get out of the plane. If an emergency should develop, they had to ditch the plane at sea. Following these instructions, those preachers were told that the airline on which they were flying had not lost a plane at sea since World War II. Oh, that fact was reassuring to them. Precautions were given, though, in case they became an exception. Now, in regard to our salvation, God does not have a good record. His record is perfect. He has never lost a case or else the words of Jesus we heard last Sunday are utterly untrue. As Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And so I would come back again today to reaffirm the same truth of last Sunday, namely that when we open our hearts and make a commitment of heart and soul to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then he does his part and gives to us as a free gift of grace eternal life. If you have the kind of life or relationship with him that is shallow, or if it's only an emotional experience and it can be lost, then the logical conclusion is it was not truly eternal life in the first place. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Dale Moody, used to express it this way. If your faith fizzles out before the finish, there was a fatal flaw from the first. Sort of like a tongue twister, wasn't it? Jesus said, you must be born again or born from above. When this transaction takes place within a person's heart, that one becomes a new person. A beautiful butterfly comes to us from an ugly old worm after it has gone through a transformation period. Regardless of what happens to that butterfly, there's nothing that can make it become a creeping worm again, for it has had its very basic nature changed. Through God's rich mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, we become children of God. We may sometimes be disobedient or wayward children, but we have God's eternal promise. He does not disinherit us when we go astray. We were astray in the first place when he saved us. But as we come into that relationship with him, our new nature is going to be one of constantly seeking to please him that's characteristic of this new nature. If your life today is not characterized by the inward desire to re-examine your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, then you do well to question your salvation. It just may be what you call salvation is nothing more than a shallow, emotional, unsaving faith. There is a faith that does not save, the Bible says, You may be doing a lot of good things, including church attendance, but your soul is lost if you're not a possessor of God's eternal life. Suppose we took the church role from wherever your church membership is, whatever the denomination, and suppose we burned that list of names. Would you feel less secure about your salvation? Suppose you suddenly had no membership in a church anywhere. Would that bother you in regards to your eternal life? It shouldn't. Julia Johnston writes of the richness of God's grace in these words, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Have you participated in this experience? If you have, then you have a quality of life that's called eternal and you cannot lose it. But if you're afraid you might lose what you have, And if you're not sure if it's eternal or not, then now is the time to make a commitment, yielding your life to Christ, who alone is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Oh God, thank you for your grace for us, undeserved favor that we have received through Jesus Christ, your son. Help us, oh God, to rest assured when we have committed ourselves to him that we shall not never perish. In his name we pray. Amen.